Hey, good morning, guys. My name is Cody. Um, I get to be the pastor here, and I want to welcome you to the table. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 today. Um, uh, if you have a Bible with you, um, that's the second book um, in there, right after the book of Genesis. If you don't, no worries. The Scripture is going to be on the screens uh, for you. So Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 8. I'm going to go back and talk about verses 1 through 7 for just a little bit once we get started, but this is what I want to read to us today, verses 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that um, you would speak to us today. God, that you would help us to identify um, the places where we are enslaved, the places that ruthlessly um, oppress us. God, would you point our sin out to us? Um, and God, it's tricky. We recognize it because um, Egypt wasn't always like this. Um, and the places that we um, trust and find refuge in, they weren't always bad. But God, help us to know that eventually anything that we trust in other than you will eventually enslave us. And God, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to that and that you would show us afresh and anew our deep need for deliverance. And that God, you would, um, that your kindness would lead us to repent of that and that we would trust in you, that we would go back to our first love. God, we love you. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word now. May our hearts be as grass and we ask that your words would be as fire. And we ask it in Jesus' good good name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Welcome again. If you're coming in late, welcome to the table. My name is Cody. I get to be the pastor here. And um, we're starting a new series um, called Exodus. Um, pretty straightforward. We're going to be in the book of Exodus for at least the next three or four weeks. And then we're kind of keeping with the theme of Exodus and we have to come go beyond the book of Exodus because we got to see um, that the children of Israel... Um, there's more to the story, and it's, it's found in the book of Numbers, and we find some really interesting um, things about Israel and this journey away from Egypt and what enslaved them in the book of Numbers. So here's the big themes that we're going to be looking at. Today we're looking at enslavement. To, um, next week we're going to be looking at deliverance, and then we're going to camp out for a couple of weeks um, at the base of Mount Sinai there in the book of Exodus, and then we're going to travel into the wilderness, and that's where we're going to, where we're going to get into the book of Numbers. And hopefully um, we'll wind up in the promised land, okay? All right, that's where, we were, that's where we're trying to get to, right? And we're going to say, what is a blessed life? What is a happy life? And it's probably not what you think it is. All right? All right. But, uh, but today we've got to look at enslavement. So um, 
And as we look at this, I've said this in the prayer, but you have to understand that Egypt, before Egypt was a place of enslavement, it was a place of flourishing. It was a place of flourishing. And we see this even in verses 1 through 7. And, and so, I'm just going to lay this out for you right now. Your Egypt, I realize you, you probably haven't lived in Egypt. We have a couple of people in our church that have, lived, have spent some time in Egypt and have lived there. Um, but, but Egypt, it's kind of a metaphor of, of like, where are you? Where is the place that enslaves you? Egypt is any person, place, or thing that God uses to grow you. But you eventually and functionally trust in it more than you actually trust in the Lord. That's Egypt. So, we, what is your Egypt? What is that thing that you functionally and actually trust in more than you trust in Jesus? It could be your works. It could be your baptism when you was a, a child and you thought that that took away your original sin. It could be your church family. It could be your kids. It could be your job. It could be your sense of control. It could be your, your um, prowess and power and influence. It could be all, all, anything. This is the really, really subversive thing. This is the really, really um, kind of sadistic thing about because it because anything we can turn anything into an ultimate thing and trust in it more than we trust in God. And that's exactly what Israel did. And we'll see this as we, as we lay this out. So let's look at verses 1 through 7. Israel increases greatly in Egypt. Verse 1 says this, These are the sons, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. We're going to go, we're going to spend some time on that in just a minute. Joseph was already in Egypt. Well, why was he there? He was the son. Why would he be with the other ones? Because his brothers sold him into slavery. <laughs> oh yeah, great family, right? This is how God is going to change the world through these dysfunctional people? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you and I are continued proof of it. Verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So how do we get to Egypt in the first place? Well, how did the Israelites get there? God brought them there. Now, that's a crazy thing to think. Well, Cody, I thought you just said that Egypt was like any place that we put in place of God. It is. And God brought you there. Well, that doesn't sound right. Why would God do that? I don't know. I'm not God. I can tell you this, that... It says in that text that there were only 70 people. There were 12 sons. And we've got to go back and understand this. When God decided that after the flood in the book of Genesis, he said, I'm going to change the world through one man. He picked one guy. That guy's name was Abraham. Abraham had two sons. He tried to do it his own way. He had one called Ishmael. He said, that ain't going to work. So he had Isaac. He finally has Isaac as a son. And Isaac has a couple of boys, Jacob and Esau. And he thinks that Esau is going to be the first boy. And God says, no, it ain't going to be that way. And he tries to find him against it and that causes all kinds of just 
turmoil in the house. Esau wants to kill Jacob because Jacob lies to him and tricks his dad out of his birthright, gets his pot of stew. Uh, it's all weird. And Esau's a real hairy man, kind of like an orangutan. Uh, he's red and hairy. And so that's what I think of, like Clint Eastwood, every which way but loose. That's what I think of when I think of, of, of Esau. So they, they, they have that. And then, and then Israel, he, he, God changes Jacob to his name Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. Now that's a real story because he has them through four different women and they're all living in the same house. Oh yeah, it's just as jacked up as I'm saying it is. And God's using all this, He's redeeming all this to build this family. And he, because it goes back to Abraham, He says, in you, in your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So He uses these flawed people and He builds it and He builds it to 70 persons. And then, of those 12 sons that, that Israel has, His youngest is a guy named Joseph. And he's from the woman that he really loved. And, and he knows it. And so he, favorite, he, he, favorites, he, he favors him. Gives him a coat of many colors. He doesn't give all the other boys one of them. So they're all mad. And they get mad at him one day when dad's not around. And they tie him up and they sell him to a bunch of... They just sell him to, a, to slave traders. And that's how Joseph winds up down there in Egypt. It's all there in the book of, of Genesis. Go read it this afternoon, all of it. I mean, after the game, of course, right? <laughs> so they grow, and Joseph is forced to have to reconcile with his brothers who sold him into slavery because through God's favor, Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. He, he becomes more, I mean, he is like it. He, he, he's thrown in jail, he rises and then gets thrown back in jail and then gets out of jail and rises to the most prominent position other than Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Saves his family when they're on the brink of starvation, comes back, he has to wrestle with all that, saves them, brings them all down there, gives them the land of Goshen, which is the land with, with, with all unprecedented ability to grow crops, and they just increase and they multiply just like it says here in verse 7. So Egypt was a place of growth before it was a place of enslavement. God took this family and brought them down there to Egypt so that they could grow into a nation because he had plans for that nation. God used Egypt to grow his people from a family into a nation. Egypt is not all bad. And that's the thing that's going to be really, really hard for you to spot the Egypt in your life because you're going to want it to have horns and fangs and claws and you're going to want to be able to easily distinguish it. And it probably don't. It's probably going to be... You're probably going to have really, really good, fun memories. But you're trusting in it. And that's the sinister nature of it. Because it cannot fulfill you. And it will eventually enslave you. That's exactly what Egypt did. Egypt isn't all bad, but it eventually enslaves. Here's the thing that's really crazy. Egypt is a womb where Israel grows. And then it becomes a tomb. You can't stay in the womb perpetually. The womb is temporary. By design, you can't stay there. If you stay there, you'll die. It's not meant to be a permanent location. 
So, I'm not saying that your that your Egypt, that your womb is going to be so easily identified. I know it's not. I am saying that you can't keep trusting in it, or it's eventually going to turn on you. It's going to bite you. So, I want you to identify your Egypt today. Maybe, maybe your Egypt is in your past. Maybe you're in Egypt right now. Maybe you long to go back to Egypt, because that's exactly what the Israelites are going to do. Here in a few weeks, we're going to see it. They get out, and they're like, God brought us out here to die. We, we had good food out in Egypt. We don't want to go back there. Maybe you want to go back there sometimes. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship. Control, success, acceptance, comfort, pleasure, possessions. There's all kinds of things that we can put our hope and trust in other than God. All kinds of things that we turn into functional, actual saviors. So as we look at verses 8 through 14, we see some of the characteristics of Pharaoh that can help us identify Egypt. They're characteristics of Egypt. I mean, after all, Pharaoh is the representation of Egypt. And what's really fascinating about this is that if you go back and you study who Pharaoh was and what the Egyptians thought about Pharaoh, Pharaoh was thought to be the incarnation, the human form of the sun god Ra, which was the chief over all of the Egyptian deities. And Pharaoh was thought to embody that. So you got understanding that when you start laying this out and, and looking at Exodus, and then you start seeing the plagues come through, Exodus, at least the first act of the story, is just a it is a story showing who is really God. Is it Yahweh or is it Pharaoh? Who is really in control? And we know how that plays out. If you don't, you're already reading Genesis. Go back and read Exodus too. Just that's what you'll do all afternoon. Just read the first two books of the Bible. His word will not return void. You'll be better for it. All right? Here's some of the things. That here are just a few of the characteristics that we see in in our um, our Egypts. Number one, fear of man. Fear of man. It, it, the the most often quoted commandment in the Bible. It's not in Exodus twenty, which are which is the ten command. You know the ten commandments. It's not that. The most often quoted command exhortation in the Bible is fear not. And we have fear of man issues, okay? And Pharaoh is totally afraid. Now think about now. Here's the thing: he is the most powerful person, some would say, in the world at that time, and he is afraid of all of these Israelites. Look at what the text says. It says in verse eighteen: "Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us." Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let's say multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. It goes on down because that's his fear and that's his strategy. Look at what happens in verse 12. The second sentence of verse 12. And the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but the Egyptians, the whole country, were in dread of the people of Israel. Had Israel done anything to hurt the Egyptians? No! but they're scared to death of them because they recognize, oh, they're not us. They don't dress like us. They don't worship the same gods we, don't, we worship. They're different than us. 
But the reality is, this is over the course of like 400 years. They're probably not living that much differently. We're going to see that here in just a little bit. So, fear of men. There are too many. They could turn on us. The word know, when it says that there arose a, a, a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, that word know means experientially. Like he, he hadn't talked to Joseph face to face. Now you say, well, yeah, because Joseph died a long time ago. Here's the thing. We fear a lot of people because we've never sat down and talked to them. And so we live in this fear of people because we don't know them. There's a whole lot of our fears that would just go away if you would just go across the street or go knock on the door and just have a conversation. Just enter into, enter into that world. Let them enter into your world. You'll be amazed what kind of things happen and how the fear just dissipates. So here's, my, here's, here's another one about fear of man. Fear of man often manifests itself with cynicism. We get cynical. We know the way the world operates, and we just, you know, so, and, and so we just look at people with skepticism, with cynicism, and we just we, we answer for them before we know what their answer actually is. That's, and that's how we operate. If you don't believe me, just go get on Facebook. <laughs> or worse, go get on Twitter. But that's what we, because we're all having conversations, we're just exercising our platitudes about what we think they'll say. Here's the thing. I got this from Kerry Newhoff in a book called You Didn't See It Coming. You know what the cure for cynicism is? Curiosity. Ever, ever have like a two-year-old or a three-year-old? What's, what's their number one question? Why? Why did you and mom get married? because I loved her. Why? I thought she was pretty. Why? Well, she was. Well, how'd she get that way? I don't know. God made her that way. Get up. Go to your room. Leave me alone. But, see? We, we get cynical to the curious. Here's the thing. If you want to cure your cynicism, start asking why. Get curious. Curious people aren't cynical. And cynical people aren't curious. They're not. So if you say you know what, I'm kind of cynical. We'll repent. It's nothing you can't repent of. Just get curious. Start asking why. Step across the street. Ask questions. Don't live in that fear of man. So are you cynical or are you curious? And if you're cynical, why? What do you fear? See, I'm curious about why you're cynical. <laughs> what do you fear? Number two, Pharaoh oppresses for progress. It's oppression for progression. He enslaves others for no good reason other than he is scared of them. He oppresses them. He uses them. And we know that it says that he built Pithom and Ramses, which were storehouses. So he's, he's using people to build his kingdom. Are you using people to build your kingdom? Are you being used to build someone else's kingdom? Those are great questions to ask. Number three. Here's the thing. Pharaoh doesn't know it, but he's a slave of his own ego. He's a narcissist with grandiose visions of what he wants for storehouses and pithom and ramses. And if you, if you aren't in the bus, you get ran over by the bus. 
That's who, that, this is Pharaoh. It's like, I'm going to build my kingdom, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to use people to do this. And the thing is, is he's a slave to his own fear. Now, he looks powerful. It seems like everything's working, but I promise you, that is a troubled mind. First of all, any time that you start believing that you're a god, oh yeah, you can't live up under the weight of your own expectations. And you sure will not live up to the expectations that an entire nation puts on you if they think you're God. You'll have to oppress people to flex your might. You'll have to lead that way. And it, it ends in disaster. It ends in disaster. You can't lead that way. So, this chapter sets the stage, like we said, for the first act of the Exodus story. Who is really God? Which really kind of starts blossoming in verses 15 through 22. Pharaoh is not God, neither are the Israelites, neither are you and neither am I. So let's look at verses 15 through 22, because I think we find ourselves like with the Hebrew midwives. Look at verses 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, Hebrew midwives were the ladies who helped the Hebrew women give birth. And one of, them, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if he is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. See, he's still afraid of the army. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Then the midwives said to Pharaoh, This is funny. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now I'm going to pause just there for just a second. I'm not a woman, as you can tell. I don't know biological differences between Hebrew women and Egyptian women. I know that the Hebrews have been there for 400 years. That's longer than America has been a nation. I doubt, I doubt very seriously that there's a significant difference in the birthing times of Hebrew women and Egyptian women. I just don't think there's that big of a biological difference. I don't think, I just don't think that that's true. I think that this is said to make Pharaoh look like an idiot. <laughs> it is a contest of who is most powerful. But it's also a study in ethics because the Hebrew women, although they may not have been worshiping God in the way that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph did, there's still enough left between the covenant relationship. They know that it's not right to kill their own people. There's some ethics there. They're like, we're, we'll do a lot of things that you Egyptians tell us to do, but we ain't doing that. So the story goes on. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Can you imagine that kind of... I mean, it said earlier that it was ruthless. Can you imagine that you've had this, you've had this baby, you're trying to keep it covered, and this Egyptian just walks up to you, uncovers the baby. It's a male child. Snatches the baby out of its arm and just goes throws it in the river. That's what Pharaoh said was allowable. That's what he commanded his people to do. This chapter sets the stage for who is really God. Is it Yahweh or is it Pharaoh? Here's another another way that you can tell what are you enslaved to. What do you bow to? What gets your time? What causes you to change your plans? Where are your priorities? I don't want to get legalistic in that, but, but just functionally, there are some ways that we can take and tell us, like, what do you bow to? What do you bow your time, your finances, your energy, your effort, your emotional effort? What do you bow to? What do you just serve wholeheartedly? And my next question is, does, do they deserve it? Or does it deserve it? We look at the midwives. They had a moral threshold that they would not cross. They just wouldn't cross it. They said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. Now, some people say, well, are they, did they lie? Is it right to lie? What? I don't want to get into all that. I think there's ways that they didn't have to lie. I think that technically when they said Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, well, technically that's true. They're not. They don't dress alike. They wear different makeup. They're not like them. Technically. They give birth faster. Or they actually didn't say they give birth faster. They said, we don't get there in time. Well, maybe it's because they were dragging their feet. I don't know. Maybe it's because they didn't, you know, maybe they hit the snooze too many times before they got there. I don't know. But they didn't get there as fast. But at the end of the, time, at the, end of the day, you got to say God honored their efforts to protect innocent life. So, where are you trapped? What enslaves you? What do you fear? Being controlled or losing control? God is in control. You don't have to be. Neither do I. Are you enslaved to success? Listen, God loves you. you success or failure doesn't change that. Are you addicted to acceptance? Are you enslaved by the acceptance of other people? Do you fear rejection of others? Listen, through, through Christ, you have full access to God. And I'm accepted because of what He has done for me, not because of what I have done for Him or for others. Comfort, pleasure. Listen, Christ offers comfort that far surpasses any type of earthly comfort or treasure that we find here. Material possessions? I am Christ's treasured possession. And so are you if you have taken Christ. You are His treasured possession and He is yours. There is nothing more valuable than Him. From what we know about Israel um, in, in the book of Exodus, and it's not a lot, but if we go over to chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, this is kind of enlightening. The way Moses wrote this. 
it doesn't seem that Israel depended much on God while there until the crisis happened. Moses in Exodus 2, he doesn't mention their cries for help until the end of the chapter. And even then, he, he phrases it strangely. Listen to what it says in verses 23 through 25. Moses is the one who wrote this, which he's going to come, we're going to talk about him next week. Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he phrases this, he's intimately aware of this story. And listen to how he phrases this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. He never says, and he could have said it, the Israelites cried out to their God for help. That's not how he says it. He says they cry out for help. Just this morning I was complaining to my assistant Tiffany, who hopefully you'll get a chance to to meet. She's one of the best parts of the church. Um, I was complaining to her because she's wearing a shirt. I'm like, yeah, I lost my shirt like that. And she goes, have you prayed to God about it? Well, no, Tiff. Sorry. (laughs) The reason she said that is because one time I was at their house and Wes had lost his keys. And Wes and Tiff we're starting to get into a, a tiff about the keys. And I, and I said, have y'all prayed about it? They're like, what do you mean pray about it? I'm like, well, pray like, just ask God. He knows where the keys, he knows where everything is. Oh, no, well, let's just go back and see. If, and we drove like a block, and there they were in the middle of the road. I said, there they are, Wes. Like five minutes after we prayed. Like, that had like a, an impact on them. Anytime they lose anything now, they just pray about it. And so she totally reversed it on me out there in the lobby before... Did you pray about it? No. But the, 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 seriously, this they didn't. They weren't asking God to deliver them. They were just simply complaining about their situation. As well, they had a right to complain about it. But it wasn't directed to anybody in particular. It, he, Moses is recording this and saying, look at the faithfulness of God to His people. Not... Don't get overwhelmed by looking at the faithfulness of God's people toward Him. That's not the point. If you start looking and measuring your faithfulness to God in comparison to everybody else, well, there's nobody. There's always someone worse than you. You can't look at it like you have to look at the faithfulness of God to His people and look at what it says. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw His people. Even though they weren't trusting in Him. Even though they had other functional saviors. Even though they had largely left the worship of God aside. And they had just lived and flourished in Egypt. And had basically taken on the identity of the Egyptians for that matter. They weren't living functionally much differently. But God does not forget His people. God is faithful. You and I, not so much. We're not. We forget. 
But God doesn't forget. They may have forgotten Him, but He never forgot them. And He knew. He knew. Look, I'm, we're going to turn over into the first book of the New Testament right quick. Matthew chapter 2. And it'll be on the screen if you need it. This is fascinating. I know it's only September and we're already drinking the pumpkin spice. I know it feels like Christmas because it's only 109. But just, you know, this is a, this is a Christmas text. But it, it's so telling because it's linked to Egypt. Look at this. This is talking about Joseph and Mary who were Jesus' mom and dad. Jesus has been born. He's around two years old. There's a king who wants to kill him. It is exceedingly reminiscent of Egypt. Matthew wrote this for the Jewish audience, which is why this is in here. Verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. Not forever. Until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. You see how God is so good in that he sends his son and he fully identifies with his people. Their pain, their suffering, their hurts, their emotions, their hardness of life, all of that. He identifies completely. And Joseph, he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when the prophet wrote this, he was referring to out of Egypt he called his son Israel. And now he's saying, I've called my son Christ. There's a, there was a, this was a foreshadowing of what's going on. Exodus is a foreshadowing of an even greater rescue. That God would send another deliverer greater than Moses. That God would defeat a greater tyrant than Pharaoh. He would defeat sin and hell and death. That God would bring, that God would save a people that would surpass the, the, the ethnicity and the socioeconomic greatness of Israel. He would save people from every tribe, every language, every nation. And they, they would all gather around His throne one day and they would worship and bow and sing praises to the God of the universe who has saved and saved completely. He has rescued and will continue to deliver His people out of a greater bondage and slavery. He will not leave you alone. He loves you too much to leave you alone in your slavery. He will not leave you there. And He does it through Jesus, who became one of us, lived under the threat of death, Roman occupation and abuse, and Jewish religious and political tyranny. And He came to set the captives free. What enslaves you? What is your Egypt? You're probably not going to leave it until you can name it. Probably going to figure out, figure out where you are before you can figure out where you want to go. Jesus calls us out. God called Israel out of Egypt. He called Jesus out of Egypt. And He is calling you out of Egypt as well. On this Exodus journey, will you go? 
will you leave that behind and say, this is not going to save me, but I know the one who does. For some of you, that you've already done that. And you, you're, you're in the wilderness, you're, you're in this Exodus journey right now, and you come every week and by faith you take communion. You remember what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You take that bread remembering his perfect life. You take that juice and you drink it remembering his perfect death that sets you for, that, that That is your righteousness. That is the only basis of which you can come before God because of what Christ has done for you. You're a Christian. You trust in him. You believe in him. Others of you, you're not a Christian yet. And so I don't want you to bow to religious ceremony. I don't want you to come and take communion and and think that that's going to magically make you a Christian. It's not. There's nothing special about it. It's just juice and bread. It's It's what's really going on in your heart that really matters. But if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you into a conversation. Just to... Come and, you know, let's sign up. Fill out one of those cards. Let's get coffee. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out where you're at. I will take as long as as it takes. I just want to invite you into a conversation. Some of you have been wrestling with that for months. And you're holding on to this because you're so scared of letting go of it because it is your lifeline. And you're holding on. and, and you, But you, you can't. You can't grab hold of Jesus until you let go of that. And I'm asking you just today by faith, say, okay, I'm letting go of that. And not be enslaved by it. Jesus will not let you fall. He will grab hold of you and he will never, ever let go. And I promise you, I've been walking with Jesus for about 30 years now. His grip is pretty tight. Sometimes unbearably tight. Because I'm a hard head. But he loves. He loves deeply. He loves thoroughly. And he will not let go. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm telling you, Pharaoh and Egypt will forsake you. And they will leave you high and dry. They will enslave you. And that's not what you're made for. You're made for so much more than that. So I want to ask you to believe today. If you don't believe, I'm asking you to believe. Just simply let go. It may just be as simple as praying with open hands and say, Jesus, I trust you. And then when people are done taking communion, they're going to come down the center aisles, grab the communion. They're going to take it um, either in the corner or at their seat. And one by one, we're going to start standing. We're going to sing. We're going to sing to this God, this Yahweh God who has created us, who has saved us, who has set us free who is bringing us out, and we're going to sing to him all of the praise he deserves. We're going to sing loud. We're going to cry. We're going to s- Some of us don't even sing that well. That's fine. We're just going to sing because he deserves all the praise and honor and glory. Okay? And we invite you to join and be sung over and know that you have a place at the table. It says in the, in the, at the end of the book of Exodus, when, when they left... When they left Egypt, that there was a mixed multitude. There were the people of God, but there were also some Egyptians who said, yeah, we don't believe in Pharaoh anymore. We're going to trust God. There were Egyptians who joined in with them. I'm asking you, if you don't believe today, be part of us. Be part of us. Let me pray for you. We're going to take communion, and then we're going to sing together. Jesus, we love you. We say thank you for all that you have done. God, would you set your people free today?
God, you are faithful. You never give up on us. You are always true. God, would you would you set us free today? Would you pry our hands back from those things that we are trusting in, those functional saviors that we know will eventually enslave us? God, would you set us free for your glory and for our good, for our deepest joy. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.